Welcome to Science in Pixars Presents Science in Podcast, the podcast where we read cool scientific literature and talk about it so you don't have to read it yourself. My name is Jared Adelman, here with my host. Madison Dix is my name. Yes, indeed. And our topic this week is something that strikes the fancy of both of us, I believe. It is the cephalopod. Yes, indeed. We do love the cephalopods. But, uh... I have been noticing that our episodes tend to go a little bit long. And, uh, fun fact, my parents were actually listening to our episode about orcas and and got just so confused because they thought that both of the articles were supposed to be on the same topic. And they were. They were both related to the ocean. But my parents thought the bone was in the orca. Oh. we'd avoid that kind of confusion by just doing one article a week (laughs) yeah that that sounds fair (laughs) um so what we thought we would do instead is uh i did the research for the article this week and what did you do this week madison so this week i decided to play a little devil's advocate and instead of looking for my own article i looked for misinformation on the topic that jared is actually covering so yeah Okay, let's let's hear it. All right, I'm going first. Okay. Oh, yeah, of course. Perfect. All right, so as we've already said, we're covering cephalopods this week. And boy, howdy, there is a lot of, let's see, what what do we want to call it? There is a lot of... Gobbledygook. Gobbledygook to squash. (laughs) (laughs) Let's squash gobbledygook. Oh, you're doing that. Yeah, let's let's uh let's let's squash some, some knowledge beef. That wasn't what we came up with, but it we'll, wasn't uh, we'll, what we we'll... came up with. What did we come up with? <laughs> um I'm we not so, gonna take <laughs> We were so pleased with it. I know it was uh, <laughs> something. It wasn't let me just go back real quick and we're gonna call it ba 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 we why does squash uh, some so... gobbledygook is a squash some nonsense. Squash, squash some nonsense. nonsense. I believe it is time to squash some nonsense. So here we go. This is our first edition of Squashing the Nonsense. Squashing the Nonsense. So one thing that you might have heard about cephalopods um, and that you might believe about cephalopods is that they come from outer space. Have you heard this? This is exactly what I was thinking when, when you said that. Sorry, keep going. Okay. Awesome. Okay. I'm glad that you've heard this before because I've heard it many a time, um, especially working in an aquarium as an educator, talking to people, you get a lot of people calling octopuses aliens. And for some people, they mean that literally. So this actually comes from a scientific article. However, I mean, all of the peer reviewing of this article is like, please stop. This is nonsense. (laughs) Um, So it comes from Basically, the fact that octopuses are so smart and so complex, seemingly a lot more complex than other animals that evolved around the same time. So in this paper, the authors wrote that the genes for adaptations such as complex nervous systems, camera-like eyes, and the capacity for complex camouflage evolved suddenly and without precedent in their family tree. So they posit It is plausible then to suggest these traits seem to be borrowed from a far distant future in terms of terrestrial evolution or is is that, is that really plausible or, 
or more realistically from the cosmos at large. Oh boy. So that is a pretty broad interpretation of plausible and realistic. Uh, and I will tell you why. You might be wondering why. I am. Um, <laughs> so as we have now actually mapped the genome of the octopus, we've seen that, in fact, octopuses' genes do have a precedent in their family tree. It's very clear to see that octopuses evolved from the same common ancestor as squid. Mm-hmm. Oh, in this paper... They posit that fertilized octopus eggs crashed into the sea aboard an icy comet at the onset of the Cambrian explosion. What? That is one theory that they present um, in this article. But like, has been what reviewed. evidence? <laughs> like where? None. None. Okay. Um, and it. that is really what the peer review process tore apart is that none of their evidence stems from like the actual literature, the actual other research that has been done on cephalopods. It's basically just a science fiction paper more than a science paper. Interesting. You know what? There is a place in the world for science fiction and I love it, but it is not in academia. (laughs) (laughs) No, not really. Um, Pseudoscience Monthly. We'll put it there. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Pseudoscience Monthly. That'd be, it's like the onion for scientists. That'd be cute, but. I collect the covers, but no, I don't read it myself. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That theory of fertilized octopus eggs crashing into our planet uh, at the beginning of the Cambrian explosion, uh, that has been refuted because the octopus nervous system genes split from the squids 135 million years ago, which Mm -hmm. I'm sure you know, Jared, is long (laughs) Cambrian explosion. Yeah, that was my first thought, but... Yeah. Indeed. Okay. <laughs> so that theory, nonsense. Proven nonsense. Uh, Thank God. So another theory arises. <laughs> this oh boy. theory uh, is that an extraterrestrial virus infected a population of early squid and caused them to evolve rapidly into octopuses. But, okay. What? Yeah. So. I- <laughs> obviously this is incredibly speculative um, it's incredibly to say the least yes now i don't know a whole lot about the inner workings of viruses but luckily there are people who do um one of whom whose last name is whose full name is ken stedman who is a virologist at portland state university he piped in on this issue um that for a virus Um, to somehow turn a squid into an octopus, that virus would have to evolve in a world where squid are plentiful because retroviruses apparently evolved to be extremely specific about which hosts they infect. Now that makes sense to me. Uh, That's a good point too. Like there are viruses that replicate by inserting themselves in DNA. So like, yeah, this this is a really common theme in pseudoscience, like taking something that we know and then just running with it with your eyes closed. Oh, yeah, it's a common theme in pseudoscience, propaganda, disinformation. Uh, that little seed of fact gives something credibility that it really shouldn't have. Right. Um, that's why you should fact check everything before in a statement before you post it or believe it, not just one or two things, because oftentimes it's a mix and that's what makes it so potent. Especially before you publish something like, come on, guys. Yeah, guys. <laughs> I'm not going to name them because I don't want them to get hate mail. 
but you know who you are if you're listening. Anyway, uh, the likelihood that squid have evolved on another planet, like the exact same creature, squid, eh, I'm going to call bullshit on that one. <laughs> yeah. So what you're saying is this is likely not true. Likely not. I mean, it, if it is true, smack me with a hammer on the face. <laughs> and you can quote me on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Massive amounts of squid on some other planet close enough to us that viruses can get to us. I I just don't buy it and neither do pretty much anybody in science. So that it is- It just sounds a little bit too much like the origin for Scientology. That's oh, just gosh. the first thing that comes to my head. It totally does. Well, mm-hmm. that would be a fun thing to do an episode on someday if we want to offend- Oh them. my God. Um, a pseudoscience, uh, uh, yeah, the cogs are turning in my head. <laughs> That's going to be fun. That's going to be real, uh, real fun. <laughs> so what I will say about this study is that some scientists have commended it for one thing, and that is for opening up the discourse to thinking about the influence of the universe on our planet in new ways. However, okay. the actual influences stated in this article cannot be taken seriously. No evidence. <laughs> Octopus, squid, cephalopods, they're from Earth. They're mollusks. They evolved from a snail-like creature during the Precambrian period. So that's where they're from. They're not from space. They're super weird, but they're from here. There's a lot of weird things here. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Flim now, flim. my fun fact... Oh, sorry. I have a lot more flim-flam. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, let's do it. Let's do it. I thought, yeah. <laughs> Okay, I'll try to go quickly. So the next one that I found that I've heard a lot has to do with octopus consciousness. Have you read Soul of an Octopus? I sure have. And I got mixed, mixed, mixed opinions, but yes. Yeah, it, it, is an, it is an excellent book. Very well written. It makes a really great case for, um, for not underestimating animals just because they're not vertebrates. Uh, oh, for sure. This is have proved time and time again, they have an extraordinary nervous system. They can use tools, solve problems. They're creative. They can remember people. They can do a lot of things that you wouldn't expect from a mollusk. However, um, ascribing human consciousness to them I'm not going to say they don't have it. They very well might have near human consciousness, but there is no way to test or prove that as of yet is the thing. So Once we actually learn how to speak octopus, you know, we can yeah, figure that stuff out. So scientists who actually study consciousness um, did a really good job of explaining this in a LitHub article um, that I'm going to quote from now. So the octopus probably has self models that is, updated bundles of information to moder- its, moderate and monitor its own body and behavior. I'm going to say that again because a car honked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just glad that I didn't make the sound effect for once. Okay. The octopus has probably rich self-models, constantly updated bundles of information to monitor its body and behavior. And from an engineering perspective, it would need these self-models to function effectively. But that does not mean the octopus is conscious. 
consciousness researchers sometimes use the term objective awareness to mean that information has got it in and is being processed in a manner that affects behavioral choice. So, so is, is that kind of the, whoops, sorry, what? Sorry. Um, is that kind of the same thing as having like an internal monologue or? Not exactly. Um, objective awareness um, is just, you are aware of yourself, where you are in space and the objects around you. You contain that information. Um, but as this author points out, uh, one could say that a microwave has objective awareness and is aware of its time setting. You know what I mean? Oh. That's so a low bar definition, objective awareness. We do know octopuses have objective awareness, but consciousness is an issue of subjective awareness. So, so how they feel about their surroundings. Exactly. Do they have expectations okay. about their surroundings beyond there is a fish or I am an entity with a bunch of limbs and I move this way. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, yeah. So we don't know if an octopus would say that fish is pretty or I am sad. You know what I mean? Right. We have no way of knowing right now. So there's no way to prove that an octopus doesn't have consciousness. It's also no way to prove that it does. Um, but a lot of people, when they talk about octopuses, they they put human feelings and emotions onto the octopus and assume that the octopus feels or thinks the way they would in the octopus's situation, uh, putting themselves in its shoes, which is sort of how we deal with each other. But it's really important to remember when we're looking at animals that their brain and body map is completely different than ours, especially looking at an invertebrate. Octopuses don't have a backbone. They don't have a nervous system like ours. Even their brain is decentralized. They have a larger portion of brain that's circular around their esophagus. And then they have smaller brains in each arm that can actually operate independently. That might have their own distinct personalities. Just have yeah, that. So you can't really compare the mapping that's been done of the human brain to an octopus's brain things aren't going to line up in the way you expect them to because it did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because of course not. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's why we don't know. It's not that scientists are just like, no, no animals have consciousness and I don't want to talk about it anymore. We literally don't know how to study it yet. And when we do, they'll let you know. Exactly. Also, I just want to give credit where credit is due because this was a really excellently written article. And the author's name is Michael S.A. Graziano. I feel like I've heard that name before. Cool person. Um, I probably have too, but I forget names immediately after I hear them. Oh, you were telling me. If it's not Latin, then it gets voided. Yeah. Anyone else? <laughs> <laughs> he is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Princeton University. Princeton University. Why? They study a lot of octopuses there, don't they? Or am I just completely making that up on the spot? If they do, I am unaware, but interested. Unaware, just like we aren't sure if the octopuses are. Yeah. <laughs> Good connection there. Yeah. All right. You got any more for me? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so we've covered octopuses aren't aliens, and we unfortunately can't tell you whether or not they have thoughts and feelings like we do. Um, but what I can tell you is they are not sea monsters. Is this the one with the bones that... Okay, sorry, keep going. Oh, okay, I'm interested about where you're going, but I'm going to put a pin in that for now. <laughs> okay. 
Um, so a lot of people are afraid of cephalopods, be it octopuses or squid. Usually not cuttlefish. No one's really afraid of a cuttlefish. That's in their name. Know them. Um, but they get a bad reputation because they are represented uh, in pop culture as sea monsters a lot. We get, you know, the myth of the Kraken, and then we have the villain from uh, One Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. Uh, and then we have a ton of folk tales and urban myths about these creatures attacking humans. None of them are true. <laughs> like, okay, so there is there is one verified account of a squid attacking a person. And it's from- Is this that one where the diver was in the water and he just got attacked by a pod of Humboldt squids? Okay, there's two. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry. I should say there's only one account of an unprovoked. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So to clear it up for our listeners, <laughs> the diver who specifically, he created an armor um, that was supposed to defend him against Humboldt squid, which are a species of squid that are known for being aggressive, but they live very deep. Mm -hmm. um, he went down in his armor specifically to test the armor. And so was provoking the squid and then got attacked by the squid because that's what he wanted. It did not so work for him. <laughs> <laughs> that is evidence. Some might argue that you should not go provoke a pack of squid just because you think you have cool armor. There are some ideas that are just inherently bad. Yeah, maybe do some human tests first. I'm not saying like put a bunny in the suit and send it down. None of that. Like maybe just, you know, test the bite force. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah. But force that is the reason we know their bite force, which is kind of cool. Um, and now we do know that a Humboldt squid has a strong enough beak to puncture a Kevlar vest. That's great to know. Um, That's also great tonight. But here I am trying to tell you not to be afraid of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, even with that amazing bite force, they are not a danger to humans. So the only, what is it called? Verified <laughs> account of a squid actually uh, killing somebody. Oh, he didn't even kill him. Um, was when the Britannia sank in 1941 in the South Atlantic. Um, and some of the survivors were on a sinking raft. Um, so this account comes from Lieutenant R.E.G. Cox, um, who told people later that the man next to him was grabbed by tentacles and dragged off of the, off of the, what's it called? Off of raft. the raft. <laughs> Um, and then the next victim, I guess, of this squid was the lieutenant himself. The squid tried to grab him, um, and he has some large tentacle sucker wounds to prove it, um, but the squid was not able to pull him into the water. So now I was about to say, like, this sounds made up. A squid I know. is just, like, stalking a group of people on a raft, and it had the strength to, in the water to pull them in? Like, really? Well, I mean, they do. The muscles oh. cephalopods have are like your tongue muscles. They're able to get um, to, to pull on each other. So they don't need something to hold on to in order to have strength. Was not thinking about that. Okay, thank you. Um, but once again, I'm here to convince you not to be afraid. Of <laughs> 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 uh, 
Um, so this is the only substantiated report of a giant squid killing a human. However. Oh, giant squid. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, see, I was thinking about something the size of a Humboldt squid, like, leaping out of the water and grabbing someone and, like, heroically yanking him down. Okay, that's a much, that makes much more sense. Yeah, no. The giant squid. Um, Based on the size of the suckers, it was estimated to be about 23 feet long. Oh, my God. Big squid. Um, Big squid. But they are very rarely seen. They live in the deep. Um, So, he does have these suction cups wounds on his leg, which is the only reason that this story has been verified. However... This same person, R.E.G. Lieutenant R.E.G. Cox, in his story, also said that another person on the raft had his lower half bitten off by a shark, and another one was eaten whole by a giant manta. All right. Now, no, <laughs> no, that definitely didn't happen because manta rays are filter feeders. Indeed. Tiny, tiny plankton. Can you imagine if it just, like, leaped out of the water and just, like, landed mouth first on the guy? Right? Like, what? So, I mean, we know that, you know, lack of hydration, maybe drinking salt water, not having a lot of food, having recently experienced great trauma. His recollection of this might not be the best. <laughs> um, We have those suction cups, but, like, I don't know. Maybe... I can't think of another explanation for the suction cups. So that's the only verified account. Okay. Interesting. It's the only even marginally verified account. It just feels to me like the kind of story where like you tell it and the back gets bigger every time, but right? I'll, I'll, I'll just have to take his word for it, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I'd love to tell you that there are absolutely no verified stories of cephalopods attacking humans, but it, there is that one. <laughs> There you go. But, I mean, stories that you hear on, like, river monsters or other dusty corners of the Discovery Channel (laughs) (laughs) Um, are exaggerated. These are curious but elusive animals as a whole. You brought up a really good point, too. Like, they're really, really strong, but if you don't mess with them then like you're not going to get the horns or yeah the horns. they're not a fight animal if you will their first their their first like seven lines of defense are all about getting away that's i mean that's why they have ink to make they have so many defenses to help them get away from danger get away from conflict this is not an animal that's going to try to attack you to attack you outright plus exactly much bigger than any of the known food sources of any species of cephalopod sorry what was that last part we are bigger than any of the known prey species, any of the known food of any species of cephalopod. So. Oh, yes. They're not. I would, I would be really scared of sperm whales. Actually, no, I am actively scared of sperm whales because they consume giant squids, but that's a whole different issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sperm whales do do that because um, they're badasses. Moving Indeed. <laughs> Um, there is a myth specifically about the flamboyant cuttlefish and their venom. Is this something you're covering today or should I go ahead? It will be something I'm covering. Okay, we'll skip that one then. That's a, (laughs) it's just, uh, just to get you going. Um, so I only have two more and I couldn't not talk about them because they're hilarious. All right. I'm excited. Um, 
So the first one is um, the secret tragedy of New York City, the giant octopus attack on the Cornelius J. Kolf, a Staten Island ferry boat dragged to a watery grave with 400 souls aboard, November 20, <laughs> 1963. Few recall the harbor horror because the news coverage was eclipsed by the shocking assassination of JFK in Dallas that very day. Well, <laughs> it never happened. It didn't happen. <laughs> what? But it has a monument. Okay. <laughs> this is where I draw the line. Um, don't draw the line yet, because guess what? Okay. A performance artist did this. What? So there's an artist in New York City. His name is Joe Reganella. And he created a bunch of brochures, a legit website, and this statue, all to try to lure tourists to this far corner of Staten Island um, for a fake museum he was advertising devoted to this attack. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> it took him like six months to put it all together. And to this day, you still get tourists going to that part of Staten Island looking for the museum, which, of course, is not there. That is such an insane amount of effort put into such a weird idea. <laughs> I love it so much. I, I exactly my sense of humor. <laughs> props to you, weird man from yeah. the 60s. There's a, there's a cultural center there that has a bunch of different cool stuff going on. Um, oh, yeah? But there is not a, as advertised, Staten Island Fairy Disaster Memorial Museum or a fairy disaster gift shop. Or a fairy that had a disaster happen to it. Actually, the fairy is real. Uh, oh, it is? Yeah, it's a real fairy, um, but it didn't sink. Um, so the name of the fairy, again, is... Where'd it go? It's fun when you can read well. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the the fairy was the Cornelius G. Kolf, and the actual fairy was turned into, oh, a, a boarding home for extra prisoners on Rikers Island. Okay. And after it wasn't being used for that anymore, it was uh, stripped and sold for parts. A little less exciting. Yeah, I was going to say, that's definitely a more fitting end for a ship like that, being pulled yeah. down. Yeah. Wait, this was in a... Aren't there no freshwater octopus? Anyway. Yeah, it's in a river. And also, this is a giant Pacific octopus in the Hudson River. Oh, boy. <laughs> so a lot of problems here. Yeah, so, I mean, it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, but, of course, people believed it because people believe ridiculous things. We love our stories. Yeah. So they were looking. This um, the, the, the flyer also advertised an octopus petting zoo. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds amazing and something the octopus would absolutely despise. Yeah. I'm absolutely going to visit, visit it, though. Uh, the next time I'm in, I'm in New York City... It's right across the street. The memorial, the little statue, is right across the street from the Snug Harbor Cultural Center, which is a very cool place. <laughs> so it gives it more of an illusion of being real then. Yeah. Um, and the statue is awesome. It's like a giant octopus devouring a fairy, kind of like um, kind of like the image on the Kraken rum bottle, except with pirate <laughs> ship. Love it. Love it already. Cool stuff. So I loved that one. Um, and then 
another one that you might have seen uh, maybe a couple years ago bopping around social media. Have you heard of the Pacific Northwest tree octopus? What? what? Yeah. What? <laughs> <laughs> Please explain. So, um, this is actually was an experiment, a scientific experiment, complete with paper, um, oh boy. that aimed to get insight into young people's capability to detect fake news. A very hot button issue in 2018 and today. This is not going to end well. Um, so they were trying to identify whether school children were able to tell that the spoof website Save the Pacific Northwest Tree Octopus was fake. Um, so there was one study in the Netherlands with 27 school children and one in the U.S. with 53 school children. How many of the school children do you think were able to tell that the Northwest Pacific tree octopus was not real? I'm going to go optimistic and say 40%. So in the Netherlands, only two children... 7%. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., six children. 11%. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. So okay. it is, uh, it's really hard to tell what's false information online if you don't have a good base of knowledge in the subject. It was a very legit-looking website. It was circulated on real social media sites. Um, oh, that's smart. The message. It wasn't, you know, beware the Northwestern Pacific tree octopus. It was save the Pacific tree octopus. And um, a lot of young people shared it and believed it. But that is fantastic. I wonder if that's how some urban legends have started. Oh, for sure. <laughs> save Bigfoot. He didn't do nothing wrong. Yeah, just scientists dicking around. Oops, started a religion. <laughs> <laughs> oh god that yeah. was a fantastic look into octopus history thank you so mm -hmm. with that i conclude my damn it <laughs> <laughs> smashing squashing squashing nonsense with that i conclude my squashing of the nonsense related to cephalopods and now i'd like to hear what non-nonsense that you i do have one more nonsense for you Oh, please. Um, remember what I said, that weird thing about the bone? Yep. So there is, I probably should have looked up something about this, but I'm just going to give you the uh, basic details. There was a fossil of a really big marine reptile. I think it was a, uh, might have been a plesiosaur, but its bones were oddly arranged in a way that sort of maybe to some people looked like the suckers of an octopus. And a paleontologist looked at this and compared it to a modern species of octopus that does sort of play with its food in this way. And he wrote an entire paper about it. And then oh. it, of course, lit a fire on, on, on a lot of people. And they were sort of talking about this massive octopus kraken. But like in a lot of your studies, they didn't do anything to disprove other ways it could have happened. Like uh. The bones very well could have just moved that way over time. He literally said, hey, I think this happened. And so we're going to publish a paper and not discount anything else. How does that get by? You know what I mean? I, I don't know. I could not tell you. There were just some people who were really, really good at bull uh, chitting. 
Like, if if that's allowed, I can absolutely be a scientist. <laughs> I'm doing a lot of research for your your episode next week, and anybody could have called them, them themselves a doctor in the past, just uh, for a for, for a little foreshadowing. Oh man, the past. What a terrible place full of opportunities. What a terrible, terrible place. It, uh, indeed. <laughs> so yeah. with that up, uplifting message, are you ready to hear my paper? Yes, I am. All right. So my paper is titled Flamboyant Cuttlefish Behavior, Camouflage Tactics and Complex Colorful Reproductive Behavior, Assessed During Field Studies at the Lemba Strait, Indonesia. Yes, That's- I love the Lemba Strait. Indeed. Uh, That's a super long title, even though it's a pretty good one. Uh, But this paper was published into the Journal of Experimental Marine Biology and Ecology. Long paper, long title. Um, If I were to rename this paper, I would call it Wild Flamboyant Cuttlefish Only Rarely Live Up to Their Name. Oh, okay. Wild Flamboyant Cuttlefish maybe are a little more tame and normal than expected? Not the males, but but you could say that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> not the males um, not the males but first we're going to take a slight detour because one of this paper's co-authors is dr roger hanlon who has studied them for decades and is pretty much entirely responsible for my love of cephalopods in the scientific sense Aww. um yeah so four or five years ago when i was still in school i uh, attended a lecture by dr hanlon at the new england aquarium he was talking about one of the more noticeable notable aspects of cephalopods their color change abilities Mm-hmm. So he began with the basics. Again, this is something he's been studying for decades. Um, they're not basic. Um, their camouflage is insane. So instead of using hormones uh, to control their color change, like most animals, color change in cephalopods, at least the top layer of skin that changes, because there are multiple layers, um, is under direct neural or brain control. Hell yeah. Many, many, indeed, many, like many times faster <laughs> than in animals like lizards and fishes. And there are a lot of animals like vertebrates that can change color, but not nearly as fast. Okay, can I pause for real quick? I have yes. a lot of questions about that. We don't need to go into it right now, but because I love cephalopods so much, like obviously I'm real into chromatophores, which are those neural muscular cells that help them change color and how mm-hmm. they work. But then I look at animals like chameleons and or even like flounder, for example, and I'm like, how did they do it? And I still don't know. So this is a tricky thing, and I'm not going to talk too much about it because I am not knowledgeable enough to myself, but the it kind of depends on what you want to call a chromatophore. Like in octopuses, they have the entire chromatophore system, which you could yeah. be talking about their chromatophores or another organ. Um, chameleons use a lot of what's called iridophores, which are filled with these little crystals that octopuses actually evolved as well. I was going to um, say, but- yeah, octopuses, squid, and cuttlefish all have an iridophore layer too. Indeed. Um, The main thing, though, is the neural control. There is no other animal we know of that has this fine-tuned control over their camouflage. And we can actually call it... That's what I would call the neural network in the skin of the cephalopod. We don't have that in the skin of a chameleon. Is that right? Exactly. There's this controlled... So, like, they send a hormone around their body, and over the course of, like, 30 seconds to around a minute, their color will change. I see. So it's like the difference between your brain like carrying a little note from the kitchen to the table and like the kitchen being the table. Yes. Yes, exactly. It's a fun way of putting it. Got it. Continue. Alrighty. So uh, like you were saying, cephalopod skin is riddled with thousands to sometimes millions of little tiny organs called chromatophores. Uh, These are basically a little house. (laughs) They're not a little house. (laughs) 
<laughs> they house a sack of pigment that's surrounded by muscles. Um, these muscles will expand or contract these pigment sacs, and that's going to alter the amount of light that's allowed to pass through. So the chromatophore layer, by expanding or, or contracting the sac, it's going to change it to either yellow, brown, or red. So those are the uh, top layer colors. Then underneath that, which you have also said, are the iridophores, uh, which are filled with a special kind of crystal. And the crystal, they're called iridophores because they're iridescent. They're going to reflect back light, light back at different wavelengths and colors, depending on the angle you're actually observing them at. And then, in shallow water, cousins, you often have leucophores, which are going to yes. reflect back the, uh, they're, they're so cool, the uh, dominant wavelength of light in their environment, which is most often blue. It has this weird effect of making it like you're not even looking at them as you're looking at them. It's like, it's hard to put into words. I call leucophores the mirror layer. I like that. Yeah. yeah they're, they're the mirror layer. Yeah. Um, leucophores oh, are the, for me, leucophores are the mirror layer. Iridophores are the disco ball layer. <laughs> chromatophores are the false sweater on top of it all the whole thing is an acid trip to me but um oh yes. well you know <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing combined mm -hmm. oh and they can also change the texture of their skin by squeezing on these little tiny sacks of jelly um i hate the way this is correctly pronounced um dermal papillae i hate that word i hate it i don't know why no, i don't like, like it I don't like it. I always said it like papillae before I thought to look up the, the uh, pronunciation, and that just sounds way better in my head. Uh, I do not like papillae. <laughs> I understand. There are many words that I have learned from reading them, and then when I hear them pronounced, it's like a, a shot to the gut. Ugh, the worst. Ugh. And then, like, if you write a word for too long, it starts to, like, lose any semblance of meaning. Yeah, true. For our Lucky. listeners, if anyone, if you are, if you do get into reading scientific papers and then you start talking about them to humans in your life. If it like <laughs> comes at you with, that's not how you pronounce that word. Just remind them that the reason you pronounced it wrong is because you read, you read it. <laughs> I like that I'll a lot. Back. All right. Wonderful. Um, yeah. So these abilities working in tandem and largely in a fraction of a second, at least for the chromatophores are how cephalopods have become the true masters of dynamic animal camouflage. So, like, there's camouflage, which is, like, being a color, but dynamic camouflage is, like, you go on a background and then you're that color. And it happens real fast. Yeah, there's one experiment um, with cuttlefish specifically on a checkerboard, and they're able to mimic that pattern, even if they've never seen it before. Pretty wild. Indeed. Uh, that's actually what I'm about to talk about. Oh, um, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 I like it. Um, so Dr. Hanlon was also interested in the seemingly limitless uh, patterns of disguises that cuttlefish wear. Uh, more specifically, how they could possibly keep track of them all, if that's what they're doing, um, and recall them as needed. So like you said, through a series of trials placing cuttlefish on various pattern backdrops, he realized that they don't actually have to memorize a mountain of disguises. They only have to know three, um, which are uniform, modeled, and disruptive. So disruptive is the one that you just talked about. It's like the splotchy checkerboard of color. And that's really good for surfaces like, uh, like kind of like pebbles or like just multicolored, multifaceted surfaces or yeah, display. So let's say like a coral reef with a bunch of different types of corals or a situation where you've got a lot of dappled light. Exactly. So you go disruptive. Um, uniform coloration is only one color. Um, it's great for moving across substrates like sand and mud. And modeled uh, is good for backdrops with like a marbled, swirly, or speckled appearance. But basically, you can look at like thousands and thousands of pictures, and every single picture fits into one of those three categories. So like three basic disguises for all of their camouflage needs. Hmm. And that was 
just like hearing that such amazing complexity could be so easily shuffled into three little templates kind of set off an explosion in my head that hasn't really stopped. Um, okay. It's just so, so damn cool. So Madison, I'm sure that you're asking yourself, what has Dr. Hanlon been up to lately? I sure am, Jared. <laughs> well, uh, Dr. Hanlon and uh, the co-author of this study has been using citizen scientists to turn the popular view of a very popular tiny cuttlefish on its head. And this, of course, is the flamboyant cuttlefish. So small. Indeed. So the flamboyant cuttlefish, or Metasepia pfefferi, um, is, I like that name, is Can found I... naturally... You, yes. need to, you need to say the Latin slower, friend. <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, Meta sepia, that's the genus, pfefferi. There's so many Fs in this, in, in this species. Meta sepia pfefferi. Yes, or pfefferi, depending on how you want to say it, like we talked about. Um, pfefferi. Indeed. Pfefferi One or the other. For me. So, so maybe not pfefferu, because that's not... <laughs> like... Sorry. Anyway. All right, let's keep moving. <laughs> So, the, the uh, Metasepia pfefferi is found naturally between the coasts of southern New Guinea and north and west Australia. As their name would suggest, these tiny cuttlefish, tiny being between tiny being between six and eight centimeters, are most well known for their flamboyance display, a vibrant, exceedingly complex performance of swirling of dark bands of color, arm posturing, and flexing of their papillae. Now, a widely held view of flamboyant cuttlefish in the wild is that this flamboyance is very commonly displayed. Um, Dr. Hanlon, however, was pretty skeptical, for one thing. Up to this point, there were a whopping two, that's zero two, uh, published scientific papers on this species. One was a combined lab and field study, and the other was done on fifth-generation captive-bred specimens at the public aquarium at Epcot. So one study was on captive-bred cuttlefish, and the other one was only half about wild cuttlefish. Gee, but... And these are... Indeed, the only ones published. Um, oh. Another issue, indeed, another issue is that wild flamboyant cuttlefish typically inhabit flat, muddy habitats where their display sticks out like a sore wet thumb. Um, this display is in part aposematic, meaning that their colors can be taken as a warning sign for predators to stay away. Now, this next part made me really frustrated because there is supposedly a report that cuttlefish are poisonous, that they store toxin in, 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 in their muscles. And I, I, I saw this on the documentary. I saw it on two very popular websites. It wasn't published, and there's no evidence of it in any, like, peer-reviewed journal. Yep. Um, yeah, so, like, just because they do this flashy display, we just kind of assumed that they were toxic. Um, yeah, there is... it just goes to show that, I mean, so the category is that your friend, the scientist, whose name I've already forgotten. Roger Hanlon. So, the categories, <laughs> the categories that Roger Hanlon laid out for types of cephalopod color patterning, those are mm -hmm. good categories. But there are a lot of bad categories in science that um, are created, but animals don't really fit into them. And even with the good categories, you can't just say just because this animal has the same traits as the animals in this category, it belongs in this category. Like for this example, these flamboyant cuttlefish have this really bright color display doesn't necessarily mean that they're a highly venomous animal like the blue ringed octopus or the lionfish. Exactly. And there's, there. exactly. And to that point, there's only evidence to the contrary that flamboyant cuttlefish are poisonous to, to, to their predators. There's just, there's, there's no evidence. Yeah. They get um, snacked on all day. Nothing bad happens to the predators. Exactly. Whether they have toxin in their muscles or not, their predators eat them all the same. 
Yeah. Um, so suspecting that something was amiss, uh, Dr. Hanlon, and I am so jealous of this co-author. This is an undergrad student. Uh, her name is Gwendolyn McManus that Dr. Hanlon took to Indonesia and let co-author this paper. And like, good for, good for her, but I'm also insanely jealous. And You go, uh, Gwendolyn. Love you. Indeed. Indeed. Um, I'm also jealous. Uh, so Dr. Hanlon and co-author uh, amassed a group of volunteer citizen scientists to help gather data by muck diving, that's diving in the muck, um, in the Lemba Strait of Indonesia. So Madison, would you like to tell us what a citizen scientist is and how easy it is to become one if you want to? Why, yes, I would love to. <laughs> a citizen scientist is a citizen, that is someone who does not have training in the sciences, or even if they do, is not currently employed as a scientist, um, who agrees to help science in one way or another. And there are tons of opportunities for citizen science. There's a lot of super structured opportunities where you can actually go on excursions and help scientists with very specific tasks. Earthwatch is a really great organization that organizes these sorts of trips if you want to do a citizen scientist trip. But there's also a lot of like really low time commitment ways that you can be a citizen scientist. For instance, there's a ton of rolling projects on an app called iNaturalist, um, which is an app that lets you look around at the flora and fauna near you, take a picture of it, and it'll identify it. So scientists who are trying to get, for example, a survey of the amphibian populations in your area, um, they might put out a call on iNaturalist in your area for people to take pictures of any amphibians that they see. And so as you're out walking your dog, you see a frog, you take a picture, bam, you're a citizen scientist. All sorts of opportunities. Cool, thank you. Um, and that actually ties into my favorite citizen science project around here, which is called Frog Watch. Um, yes. Which is arguably more important than Earth Watch, you know. Um, but <laughs> frogs are supreme. Uh, but basically- without frogs? Exactly, exactly. But what they do is they play you the calls of the local frogs and toads around you, and by learning the calls and listening to them and logging them at night, you help uh, scientists take census of the local frogs in your area. And you might be wondering at this point, maybe, why so much <laughs> on frogs? Well, guess what, my friends? Amphibians are indicator species. They're super sensitive. So how many of them there are and what types? Be a super good indicator for scientists about the health of the ecosystem. It's almost as if it's important to keep wild. This is around. not the squishy animal that we are talking about today. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, frog episode in the future, though. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Indeed. <laughs> um, yeah, so cool. Thank you for that. Um, the citizen scientists in this study were a mixed bag of local guides in Indonesia and volunteer divers. Um, for eight days in 2002 and 11 days in 2019, can you imagine just sitting on this bit of info for... 17 years just knowing this about cuttlefish but just not being able to tell anyone because you didn't publish it yet i would tell everyone i so would um but yeah so in 11 days in 2019 uh the guides and volunteers uh scoped out the area for flamboyant cuttlefish which because of what we're about to tell you is not as easy as it sounds um the cuttlefish were initially very wary of the onlooking humans i would probably be too if i was a cuttlefish um but when enough time had passed the cuttlefish decided they could just ignore the weird apes following them around um, in the science field, we call this habituating to a presence or habituation. Um, ba -ba 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 -ba. So, it's like when your fish stops caring when you walk by the bowl. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, so at this point, when they were actually finally habituated, the authors and volunteers took lots of pictures uh, in between five and 60 minutes of video of 20 different cuttlefish. I think it was eight females and 12 males. Um, also, while filling out behavioral data logs uh, for time that wasn't recorded as well and stuff that was just so they could like cross-reference it. Um, the re resulting footage was played back numerous times at normal and slow motion, and all of the data uh, elsewhere was analyzed with the same scrutiny. So first, um, with my alluding to the crazy males comments, we're going to talk about courtship, which was done exclusively by male cuttlefish. So in zoology, uh, courtship is essentially behavior done to convince or coerce a species mate to mate. I originally wrote, uh, convinced the opposite sex for this, but same-sex behavior has been reported in something like 2,500 animal species. So, Hell uh, yeah, it has. Indeed. <laughs> Um, <laughs> just to sort of throw it in there. Um, so there are a lot of factors that influence courtship and who does it. But in the case of flamboyant cuttlefish, the fact that males were only 10 to 60% the size of females. Um, Madison, real quick, look up a, a, a picture of cuttlefish mating. Well, I, I Sorry, know what no. it looks like. Oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> it just looks like one is consuming the other. It's just. Yeah, yeah. they may. I mean, it looks like face to face. They don't exactly have a face like we do, but it, it hella looks like face to face. <laughs> it really does. It really does. Um, but yeah, so because of the size difference and because the females do put a fair amount into uh, make, making sure the eggs prosper, um, that's probably why the males are the only ones courting. But in flamboyant cuttlefish, uh, male courtship involves a very display of waving and kissing. That's what kissing. they call the behaviors. Yes. Um, so waving, uh, which is a behavior not previously known from cuttlefish, it's actually the flamboyance were the first they actually saw this from, um, the male will settle down to the ground facing a female, they'll send those dark pulsing clouds of color down their bodies, um, and while waving three pairs of arms up and down uh, in a waving motion, as if to say, hey, look at me. Now, I mean, they do that's need to... what I do when I want to attract someone in a bar, I just, you know, <laughs> third arm and I'm like, hey, over here. <laughs> you got to tell me where you got that dress with the little Rorschach blots on it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, I'm losing it. Um, You're doing great, sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> so they do need to frequently reposition themselves, though, because the displays are often blatantly ignored by the females as they forage for food. Same. They just don't pay attention to them. Um, <laughs> now, the kisses were around four times less common. But they involved a male pursing all of his arms together and briefly touching them to the female's arms in a very ginger fashion. So they, <laughs> it That's was, so cute! Right? It's so cute. Oh my um, gosh! But again, this behavior was largely ignored um, while, while females continued to hunt. It would suffice to say that it takes a pretty good chunk of time before a, before a male flamboyant cuttlefish can successfully win a female's attention. Especially if she's hungry. But, yeah, well. <laughs> <laughs> which is a good uh, thought for, you know, any species. Uh, mm -hmm. But males also had other males to contend with, and male competition was recorded about four times in total. Now, I say competition, but it wasn't actually fighting. Um, cuttlefish rarely actually fight if they can help it, like we were talking about earlier. And this fighting was pretty much all display and posturing. It involved... Yeah. Oh, so this was really cool. It involved the use of what's called unilateral display, which means that they were showing sexy colors to a female on one side of their body, and fight me colors to a male on the opposite side of their body. I love that shit. Two-faced motherfuckers. They're the best. Isn't it just like, it's so cool. So one of the one of the ways we are pretty sure that this flamboyant display is a large trade-off in terms of not getting eaten, a male did get eaten while he was courting. I mean, 
it's cephalopods. I guess that is one myth that I don't have to bust because it's not a myth. They are cannibals. Oh no, sorry. A male got eaten by, by a scorpion fish. You know, scratch all that. Well, I, <laughs> you don't have to scratch it. They are cannibals, but- They are. You, but yeah. Sorry, what were you saying? <laughs> so, will you say the whole thing again? <laughs> Um, yes. So one of these battles showed that a, uh, showed how much of a trade-off this is, uh, because a fight ended, one of the fights ended when one of the males was eaten by a concealed scorpion fish. Oh, that's a way to end a fight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, that was just such a cool coincidence that, well, it's, it's not cool for the cuttlefish, but, um, so all in all, while half of all courtship attempts were rejected, so about 50% success rate, females are pretty choosy, um, 20 successes were caught on camera. Uh, females showed that they were receptive. This would be horrifying if I were a male that was 10% of what I was, the size of what I was trying to mate with, but she raises up all of her arms besides one pair, stands on that one pair, and just is like, come here. Um, so at this point, what's up? She's like, here are my two little sexy legs, and here <laughs> is my feathers. I don't know. <laughs> That's exactly what she's thinking. <laughs> um, but yes, I'm sure. Um, so at this point, the male swam up face to face or mouth to mouth, like you said, um, and they insert a packet of sperm called a spermatophore into her mouth region where a receptacle is located. Isn't it sexy? So sexy. So sexy. Just a um, little package of sperm. Yeah, just stick to my armpit or my mouth, whatever. At least it only lasts like two or three seconds. True. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Um, so mate guarding was also seen around this time, which is exactly what it sounds. It's when a male is mating with a female, he wants to make sure that no other males do do the same. Uh, but when it was time to lay, the females always went off on their own. And this was really cute. They always sought out coconut shells. Aww. Indeed. Play them um, in, like under the coconut shell? Yeah. Aww. So between 15 and 25 eggs were laid in each clutch, and their differing stages of development suggested that the same coconut was actually sought out multiple times by the same female, maybe not the same female, but but for the same purpose. Wow, that's pretty so cool. Want... Indeed. Yeah. We can add that to the list of prominent coconut cephalopod interactions right after the coconut octopus. <laughs> <laughs> that one might take the cake, but you know, yeah. that's a close second. Mm -hmm. um, so the babies that hatched were, they weren't, this is a new word, paralarva. A paralarva is kind of unique to cephalopods, unless there's another animal I don't know of that has it, but it's got larval features and it's got adult features. And that's what a lot of cephalopods hatch as. Um, but these ones were fully fledged cuttlefish. They were able to disguise and display just like their parents. Wow. Indeed. That's what we call direct development, like, uh, like humans. Yeah. Um, indeed. So this is not to say that the female cuttlefish didn't put on flamboyant displays, because they did, but compared to males, they were always extremely brief. And they also only ever happened for the aposomatic reasons, um, the warning colors. The only, things <laughs> that <warranted, laughs> the only things that warranted a female display were possible predators, and presumably the humans before the cuttlefish got used to their presence. Um, now this predator display is insane. They activate their flamboyant display in only 700 milliseconds. That's seven tenths of a second. Wow. Also, Indeed. it makes a lot of sense to me that the females wouldn't want to put on that display, that the females wouldn't be the ones courting because they're the ones who are carrying eggs. And am I wrong that they can carry eggs for quite a long time before they that, lay them? 
I know they can store sperm for a long time. I don't yeah. know if this species carries eggs for a while. Well, I mean, then they carry their eggs in their egg-making areas. But True, yes. <laughs> females are the ones who actually carry the next generation to the coconut. So it makes sense that they wouldn't want to put on all their fancy colors because that probably boosts their chances of getting seen and eaten. Am I wrong? It does. It would. It absolutely would if the uh, cuttlefish that got eaten by a scorpion fish is any indication. Yeah. Okay, cool. Continue. Yeah. Um, so, ba -ba 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 -ba. so you were saying that they initiate this display in 0.7 of a second? Seven tenths of a second, yeah. 0 0.07 of a second. No, wait. No, no, no 0 0.7. 0 0.7. Okay. Which is seven tenths. Unless my math is wrong, because it usually is. Well, you're right, but I it took me some time. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the vast majority of the time, um, uh, ba, 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 though, fe wow, words. The vast majority of the time, though, females wear drab colors. Drab is like, it's drab. It's like brown or black um, to blend in with the mud. And the males do the same when they're not trying to impress anyone, which is a good chunk of time. But, you know, they also don't really do it if they don't have to. Um, they also appeared to follow Hanlon's uniform model display um, theory, which was, I'm sure, just an extra goodie. So cool. essentially, indeed. So essentially what Dr. Hanlon and co revealed um, was that the popular perception of the flamboyant and cuttlefish is not at all what they're actually like most of the time. Yeah. But, I mean, when I think of a flamboyant cuttlefish, I think of, well, a little cuttlefish because they're small, but like they have these like Barney purple, lime green, banana yellow, like all over their body. They're like the most colorful tropical fish you've ever seen, except for the fact that they're not a fish. <laughs> exactly. And there's actually two big reasons why most people, and me included until I read this, do think that. Um, Can I guess? Yes. Is it the thing where people like to take pictures of pretty things, so they keep taking a picture of them when they're pretty and not when they're not? That is reason number one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, you hit the nail <laughs> right on the head. Uh, people like to get a good picture. And so, of course, when a diver is flashing his camera, usually with the flash on in front of a tiny little six cent, not six centimeter, tiny cuttlefish, it's going to show you uh, it's don't eat colors. Same reason people think that great white sharks are always like biting things and jumping out of the water. No, they're pretty chill most of the time. Exactly. I would be too if I was a great white. Um, so the <laughs> second reason, which... This does bring up a little bit of a dilemma, but it's uh, wild. So, sorry, captive flamboyant cuttlefish do behave a lot differently than wild ones. And whether this is due to things like artificial lighting or whether it's due to the effects of inbreeding, um, which is for now an unavoidable part of longstanding captive bred cuttlefish lines. Mm. So that is tough. Um, Ooh, what if it's because they know that people think they're pretty and will give them more food? Is that just complete flim flam? <laughs> it might be, but that's an interesting line of thought. I'd just like to pause at that third theory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but regardless, uh, flamboyant cuttlefish in aquaria are near constantly putting on their flam flamboyant display, which only adds to the, to the rumors. Interesting. Um, indeed. So to summarize and bring it all together, until quite recently, except for the guy that found it out, um, one of the most misunderstood cephalopods out there, it was the flamboyant cuttlefish. But with the help uh, from some citizen scientists, the true nature of this tiny cuttlefish has been revealed and showed us that most of the time they would rather not get eaten than put on a psychedelic skin show. I mean, between the two, 
(laughs) (laughs) I'm sure I would have chose, uh, you know, the obvious one. I don't know. It's hard. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever you say about it. Come back to me. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that is uh, this really cool article. Shows you uh, how often we assume things and uh, how often people need to go and recheck uh, what people have said. That is super interesting. Yeah. So what they learned from from it, they also learned that they're not venomous or is that not part of it? So the thinking now is that all cephalopods are venomous Um, and it plays into how you classify venom, which is that their venom isn't necessarily toxic, but it does melt their food for them. Yeah. Um, So when I was looking up nonsense, I did find a lot of people, (laughs) including articles with titles like 10 cute animals that could kill you. And (laughs) fish was on that list and many more um, as like the most venomous species of cephalopod. And I'm like, hey, have you heard of the blue ring octopus? And also, no. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, Um, Yeah. So yeah, there actually was a study that I I did find looking into this, um, trying to quantify that. No, trying to qualify that. Um, to see if I actually have venom. And they did find venom present in one male flamboyant cuttlefish. And it was a similar venom to the blue ring octopus, but like one ten thousandth of the amount. So it wouldn't even be enough to kill any of their prey items. So if you ever find a list that tells you that a cuttlefish is going to kill you with its venom, press the X button in the upper right corner, because that's nonsense. <laughs> Although scientists are looking to see what the use of that venom is, since it wouldn't be useful in uh, subduing prey or protecting themselves from predators. And they think it might have something to do with fighting off um, microorganisms. So oh. on that, that's an interesting theory. Is it the same tetrodotoxin though, or is it a different compound? It's a different tetrodotoxin. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I got some reading to do. Right. Um, ooh, I didn't get to tell you my fun fact. Oh, I didn't get to tell you mine either. let's do it um yeah so did you know that squid in terms of their soft tissue have nearly evolved themselves out of the fossil record (laughs) doesn't surprise me (laughs) indeed they suck at fossilizing and you want to know why um because they read all of the signs that say leave no trace in national parks (laughs) (laughs) they are very ecologically conscious being the base of a lot of food webs but maybe not in this instance (laughs) So cephalopods are either neutrally buoyant, which means that they are the same density as water, or they are negatively buoyant in terms of like the octopus. They sink to the bottom and they walk along the ocean floor. And there are a lot of ways that a cephalopod can become neutrally buoyant. Uh, The cuttlefish has a cuddle bone, which is an internalized shell that can fill with gas. Um, (laughs) Okay, when you say can fill with gas, I just, I prefer the phrase, it can fart little pockets of gas into the cuddle bone to help it float. It can fart little pockets of gas into the cuddle bone. That is my floor. preferred phrasing uh, to explain the cuddle bone, but continue. We'll go with that. We'll go with that. Um, <laughs> there are, um, and so squids uh, usually use, a lot of squids use ammonia um, because ammonia is actually less dense than salt water. And because they eat a lot of uh, their carnivores, it's readily available in their diet. But ammonia is not that much more less dense than water, so they have to use a lot of it, and they flood their muscle tissue with it. That's not good for anyone. No, um, it is good for the squid, but it's not good for anybody else. Um, especially yeah, when I say anyone, I mean the vertebrates. 
Yes. <laughs> so ammonia is a very, very basic molecule. It's like a pH of like 11. And it makes squid tissue often too basic to fossilize because it's just not the right conditions for it. That's really interesting. Huh. Indeed. So, so you have like a lot of hard parts, but it's really tough to find squid skin. Yeah. I mean, I would have thought the reason it's so hard to find is just because they're squishy, but I guess I was wrong. Well, it is because they're squishy, but it's also because they fill their muscle with tissue. With oh, yeah, but like jellies are also squishy, more squishy, some would argue, and we do have fossil records of them. So this makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. What is your fun fact? Um, my fun fact comes from a pretty fun Netflix show that came out this week. Many people may have seen it already, but it involves curse words, which if you've been listening, you know, I am a little too fond of. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So they did a study, which was replicated on the show, um, where they measured how long people could hold their hand in a bucket of ice water. And in the control group, um, people were allowed to say whatever they wanted. And in the test group, people were allowed to say that whatever they wanted, except they weren't allowed to say any swear words. And the group that was allowed to swear, on average, were able to keep their hands in the water twice as long. Now, this is verified by the fact that every time I stub my toe, I let out a litany of curse words. And when I don't do that, it does hurt for a lot longer. Yeah, so apparently swearing... Um, Choose your brain when you hear it or say it to release, uh, no, not your brain. Well, your brain has something to do with it. But anyway, your heart starts beating faster and you get a release of adrenaline. Um, and so that increased blood flow and also, of course, all of the wonderful things adrenaline can do for you, um, allow you to withstand pain longer, um, as long, along with a bunch of other benefits, um, so swearing is good for you? <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, now my, also, now my first thought was going to be, what does this have to do with cephalopods? But I can tell you we're not going in the same direction that I was. Oh, not at all. My fun fact was not cephalopod related. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Except for that every time I see one, I go, fuck, that's so cute. <laughs> um, have you ever seen a baby cephalo- a baby cuttlefish? I make it a point to. Oh, man. Listeners, imagine something the size of your pinky fingernail. But with complex neural functioning enough that it can change colors. It can reach up its little tentacle and tap on the glass at you. It can be scared of things. It can it can bury itself in the sand. I'm like choking up. They're so cute. They're so cute. (laughs) Ooh, uh, speaking of, I don't know why this just popped into my head, but you want to hear one more fun fact? Yeah. Um, um, do you know the, stop, I'm, my phone is just, stop it, DoorDash. Sorry about that. Um, actually, now I forgot my fun fact. Oh, I have a note for you. (laughs) Okay, go. Um, so apparently words like fuck live in a different part of our brain than the rest of our vocabulary. And I am the first one to point out that science that proposes that certain brain functions are relegated to only one part of the brain 
are a little bit squishy because the brain is super plastic and is able to, if you lose like half of your brain, you can still function as a person because the half can actually learn all of the things that the, the, the missing half was doing, but that's a whole other thing. Anyway, what I was saying is swear words <laughs> live in an older part of the brain. So not the part that we think of as the language center. And that part of the brain, um, that part of the brain that's associated with communication is also present in animals like reptiles and other mammals, um, non-cetacean mammals that don't have anything like speech, like our friends, the orcas. This leads me to believe that if these animals do communicate, it's solely entirely in curse words. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that a lot. Isn't that great? And again, that is good. squishy bit of science because the brain is super malleable, but I liked it. It tickled me. So I thought I'd share it. I do enjoy that. Um, I did remember my fun fact, but that was a good one. Great. So do you know what the reproductive organ of a male uh, cephalopod is called? A heptacomus. Yes. And do you know why it's called that? Um, because when they rip it off and throw it at the other one, then they only have seven arms. So you're thinking of hepto, but this is hecto, H-E-C-T-O. Well, it was a guess. Tell me why. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, the reason it's called a hectocotylus and the reason the name is so fancy is because of the fact that it was first discovered, like you said, in a species where the male rips it off and gives it to a female. Um, in this species, which I believe is the Argonaut octopus, uh, the female will take it and put it in her body. So a scientist found that and actually classified it as a parasitic worm <laughs> named Hectocotylus and whatever the species was. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Uh-huh. Wow. And that's why it's so fancy. Um, and for anyone wondering, ripped what off? What are you talking about? It's not like a penis um, that an octopus has, like that, like comes out of its beak or something. Is one of the arms on the end of it is modified to deliver sperm packets. So the male octopus of this species literally rips off his own arm and like tosses it at the female and jets away because if he doesn't, she'll just like eat him. Oh, we circled back to cannibalism. Yes, we did. We finally got there. <laughs> My goal is to get to cannibalism in every episode. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, we're one of seven for now, but I'm sure you will uh, do that for the time. It's my mission going. from this point forward. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, well, I think we have gone exactly as long as we usually do. Yeah, we have, but we had fun. <laughs> yeah. And I think it was more coherent because it was it like was. entirely one subject and not Yeah, like shout out to Pete and Cheryl. I hope this one is not as confusing to you. <laughs> It's my one hope. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, so thank you for listening, everybody. And uh, oh, we already have had 22 people download our first episode. Oh my goodness. That's yeah. a lot to my delicate little ears. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. So uh, thank you everybody who's been listening so far. And when this episode comes out in like two months, because we record a lot in advance, uh, you know, That's thank true. you for that. Yeah. To you, 22, you're the, you're the first 22. We love you, 22. The OG. Yes. Well, <laughs> um, I guess uh, it's ta-ta for now. It is ta-ta for now. This is Science and Podcast. Signing, sing, sciencing off. I'm Madison Dix, and that's Jared. <laughs> and we're saying goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye.